Let's pray together. Father, we want to be your people, and we want to praise you as we should, and we want our hearts to resonate with what your word says. So, Lord, we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear you. We pray that you would teach our hearts to love what you have done and to cherish what you have instructed us to do. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in the praises of Psalms 111 and 112, and we pray that you would help us, renew us, mend us, make us those who know you, give us the the depths of what it means to walk with you in covenant. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a literary critic named John Gardner who's not a Christian, but in his novel, the, or not a, it's not a novel, it's a, it's a book about literature. In his book about literature called The Art of Fiction, he suggests that the novel is a fundamentally Christian enterprise. And what this non-Christian is recognizing is that when people read novels, what they want is a happy ending. What they want is for the story to make sense. And as authors, this is what authors often do, they set their audiences up to desire certain things, and then the audience wants a satisfactory resolution to what the author has set them up to desire. I think John Gardner is on to something. And I think there is a great author of the universe who is setting people up to desire certain things, and then we who participate in this great drama that's being written by the great author, we, we want to be satisfied in the grand resolution of the overarching story of the whole world. Uh, yesterday, I was, I was listening to a Jane Austen novel as I did a bunch of yard work, and, um, and I thought that this, this Jane Austen novel, Mansfield Park, so, so typically encapsulated what John Gardner is saying, and it's, it's just sort of a, a, a prototypical example of, of what's going on here. You have this, this persecuted and um, ignored and, and in some ways abused and suffering main character, this, this woman, uh, this girl, who grows up to be a woman of virtue. And, and her sufferings and her hardships and her difficulties have formed her into a person of character. And she falls in love with this noble and upright and godly Anglican pastor. Uh, the problem is that he thinks he's in love with this other woman who is not a woman of character. And that other woman's brother thinks he's in love with our main character. And so all along, you know, Jane Austen is, is, is leading you to want Fanny uh, to get together with uh, Edmund, the, you know, the girl, the main character, and the pastor. She wants you to... And, but along the way, it doesn't look like it's going to happen because it really looks like Edmund is in love with this other woman, Mary. Um, but as the novel develops, people's character comes out. The way, the way that people uh, live their lives and the things that they desire, that begins to influence the choices that they make, and it, begin, it, it more and more becomes revealed 
And lo and behold, wouldn't you expect it, at the end of the day, there are Mary and Edmund wed happily ever and after. And it's satisfying. It's good. It's right. Well, we've been looking at the Psalms together. You may be thinking to yourself, how in the world is this related to the Psalms? We've been looking at the Psalms together, and um, what, what I would... What I would suggest to you is that the story that is sung in the Psalms is the story of the rest of the Old Testament. Well, what's the story of the rest of the Old Testament? Uh, God creates this perfect world, and a usurper, an enemy, Satan, comes in, and he leads God's people into rebellion. And it doesn't look like God's people are going to enjoy God's presence in God's good creation. But God makes a promise to overcome what the serpent has done, and then God chooses a people, the nation of Israel, and he brings them into a land, and that land is something like what the Garden of Eden was supposed to be. It's a land where God is going to dwell with God's people, and they're going to enjoy his goodness. And they break the covenant. They sin like Adam sinned. They get driven out of the land just like uh, Adam was driven, driven out of the garden. But then as, as, as things go on, there are these promises of a return to the the land of promise, that are going to be like a return to the, uh, the, the Garden of Eden. And we've seen in the Psalms that uh, it, at the end of Psalm 106, the, the, the people are crying out to be brought back from exile. And then in 107, it's as though they have been brought back from exile. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the land at the beginning of Psalm 107. And then we've looked at Psalms 108 and 109 and 110. And we saw last week when we were in Psalm 110 that we have this celebration of the triumph of God's Messiah. Now, what do you think is going to come next? This is, this is why I started talking about novels. What do you expect to come next? What's going to follow the triumph of the Messiah in, Psalms one, in Psalm 110? What do we expect to see next in Psalm 111 through 118? What we expect to see is exactly what we find. What we find is a series of psalms that contain this word, hallelujah. And, and, and that word is translated in your English translation with praise the Lord. Psalms 111 through 118 are these praises that ring in celebration of what God does in Psalm 110 through the promised Messiah. So, so you know, if, if you're wondering what kind of place is the world... Well, the world is the kind of place where it's going to look like God's people are persecuted. It's going to look like God's people aren't going to triumph in the end. But along the way, you have these indications that maybe they will triumph. Maybe things will work out. And the author is leading us to hope for and long for that that outworking that, that we get these little indications of. And the Bible is saying it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Creation is going to break forth in praise of the Creator at the resolution of all things. That's what Psalms 111 and 12 are telling us about today. And in Psalm 111, we have praise for God's works, what He does, and His Word, what He says. And then in Psalm 112, we have praise for the way that God makes it so that those who trust Him Those who delight in his works, those who delight in his word, they have a blessed life. Okay, so I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 111. And uh, these two Psalms, 111 and 12, are uh, really, really similar to one another at at a number of levels. 
Um, if you're looking at the ESV like I am, you see the words or the, the numbers 111. We could say that this is the 111st Psalm if we wanted to be like Bilbo. There it is again, John. Um, and then there's a footnote on uh, 111. You see that, that number five in the ESV? If you look down in the lower margin, it says, this psalm is an acrostic poem, each line beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So what the poet has decided to do is st start each new line with the next letter of the alphabet. And if we're talking in English, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, that, right, down the, right down the line. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 lines in this psalm. Look at 112. Uh, 112 has a footnote right next to it. You look down, this psalm is an acrostic poem, each line beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And, and in both cases, 111 and 112, which you look at the next few psalms, you don't see any such footnote. So these are, these are two acrostic poems that are set right next to each other. And in both cases, the lines in Hebrew are really short. So he, what he's doing is he's working through the alphabet and it's almost like he's saying, okay, here's an A to Z of praise for God's works and word in 111. And then in 112, here's an A to Z of praise for the way that God blesses the faithful in 112. And, and the density of it, because the lines are short, the density of it combined with the sort of comprehensive impression created by the A to Z uh, poetic form it, it gives the impression of a high degree of poetic artistry. This is, these are really impressive compositions that, that some unnamed psalmist has put together for us. So they're both acrostics, 111, 112. They both pull off 22 letters in just 10 lines, right? They're just 10 verses each. And they both begin, look at 111, 1, praise the Lord in Hebrew, hallelujah. 112.1, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And then after that H word, begin the, uh, the A to Z words. Um, look at 111. The psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. And then he goes on to say, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Okay, so... Just imagine the scene. You've got an individual, and he's in a congregation. And this congregation consists of the company of the upright. Who is the individual? Have we seen this kind of thing before in the Psalms? You may remember that back in Psalm 22, when, a long time ago, two years ago or so, Psalm 22, you have this Psalm of David and David is speaking of the, in the first person, and then he gets down to first, verse 22, and he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Okay, so here, here's what I would suggest to you, just like what we've seen in Psalms 108 and 109, where in 108 in particular, the words of the historical David from Psalms 57 and 60 are put on the lips of the future David, the future king from David's line, David's Lord who achieves the triumph in Psalm 110. So also here, I think in Psalm 111, we've got the future David doing what the historical David did, right? David, he experiences God's salvation, and he says in Psalm 22 and in several other Psalms, I'm going to praise you in the midst of the congregation. 
And, and this is what the historical David did, isn't it? He, he uh, set the Levites in order for the praise of the Lord. He wanted to build the temple for the Lord to be praised. And so I think in Psalm 111, we're to think of David's Lord, the conquering king, the Melchizedekian high priest of Psalm 110, now leading the company of the upright, the congregation in the praises of the Lord. And then look at verse 2. He says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. This word rendered studied here is a word that means searched, searched by all who delight in them. And I think the reason that they've, they've translated this studied is because they're rightly interpreting this to mean that, that the works of the Lord are recorded in the Scriptures, and those who search the Scriptures are studying the works of the Lord. I think that's what's, what's going on here. Uh, great are the works of the Lord, searched in the Scriptures and studied there by all who delight in them. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work. Now I just want to pause here and ask an, an application kind of question. And this is the, this is the kind of question that um, I, I think you really, want to, you really want to give some thought to. What do you study? What do you think about? What do you know best? What does your mind turn to? And when you think of splendor and majesty, what comes to mind? One way to render verse 3 there is, you could translate this, splendor and majesty are His work. Splendor and majesty are His work. Now, I think in part what the psalmist is getting at is, the reason we have a capacity for beholding splendor and majesty is because God built the world the way that he did. And then he created our receptors to perceive things like splendor and majesty. It's all too easy for us, not just in this culture, but as human beings, it's all too easy for us to miss the splendor and the majesty that God has built uh, into the world. It's all too easy for us to experience this fabulous creation and never think of the Lord. It's all too easy for us to, to, to go on uh, maybe even singing these songs and never really let it rest on us, the mighty acts of God that he has accomplished on behalf of his people. God raised Jesus from the dead. And, and even before that, Jesus... God became man. I mean, there, there is unsearchable splendor and majesty in the, in the work of the Lord. We want to be people whose hearts are most captivated by these things. And we want to resist all the stuff in our culture that would lead us into just missing it and not, not thinking about it. So... so here I'm going to quote Ross Douthat, resist the internet, turn off the screens, turn off the television, get up from the computer, turn off the iPad, 
think about the Bible and experience the world and look people in the eye. Live. Experience the splendor and majesty of God's work. And the, the second line of verse 3 says, and his righteousness endures forever. This righteousness flows out of who God is. It's from his character. It will never change. So we've got generalities, right, in verses 2 and 3 about the works of God. Verse 2, greater the works of the Lord. Verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work. Just general statements. Well, they're going to be particularized in verses 4 through 6. So there's a celebration of God's works, and now we're going to get specific about God's work in verse 4 of Psalm 111. The psalmist says, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. Now, because of what he goes on to say, uh, and, and, and because of the way that this is phrased, I think what he's talking about is the institution of the Passover in Israel's history. And, and what does the Passover memorialize? It memorializes... God's work at the exodus from Egypt, right? So this is important for, for a dynamic at work between Psalms 111 and 112 uh, because here in 111 verse, verse 4, he caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And over in 112, uh, the psalmist is going to tell us that the righteous man in verse 6 will be remembered forever. And the, the wording of these two statements is, is very close uh, in, in, in the original Hebrew. So those are connected statements, and we'll, th- we'll talk more about them when we get into 112.6. So we're talking about the Passover here in verse 4, which is instituted as a, as a commemoration of the exodus from Egypt. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. So if we got Passover in verse 4, providing food is probably manna from heaven, water from from the rock in the wilderness, right? And then he says in verse 5, he remembers his covenant forever. Now, we could could talk about this more, but I don't think this is talking about the Sinai covenant. Um, I think this is talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham. God made this covenant with Abraham, and because he made the covenant with Abraham, he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And then verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. So if we've just had exodus and wilderness, what's this? Well, the conquest of Canaan, right? These are the works of the Lord. The Lord brings Israel out of Egypt. He gives them food. He, he, He spreads a table in the wilderness, as the psalmist put it elsewhere. And then he conquers the nations that that inhabit the land of promise. Why is the psalmist talking about these things? I think Psalm 111 is interpreting Psalm 110. And the way that Psalm 110 is being interpreted in 111 is the same way that the death and resurrection of Jesus are going to be interpreted in the New Testament. Okay, so so here's what's happening. God saved Israel at the Exodus, and that became like a paradigm for the way that God would save his people. And the prophets, when they talk about how God's going to save his people in the future, they talk about what he did at the Exodus. The old is the paradigm for the new. And now, Psalm 110 celebrates the, the conquest of the future king, And what's Psalm 111 doing? Well, it's praising God for the way he saved his people in the past because the way he saved them in the past is the way he's going to save them in the future. 
And this is exactly the way that the New Testament authors speak about the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. Uh, Jesus dies as the Passover lamb. Um, Jesus is also the good shepherd who is leading his people through the wilderness, and he's going to take them home to a new Jerusalem. So, you know, you've got uh, exodus, wilderness, and conquest right there in the imagery of the New Testament, and it's, and it's, it's, it's pervasive. So we got the works of God. Now look at this, this emphasis on the words of God in verses 7 and 8. The works of his hands are faithful and just. Um, I would like to tweak this. Uh, I, I, would, I wish they would have translated this. The works of his hands are truth and judgment. The works of his hands are truth and judgment. And, and so just as God made splendor and majesty, God also is the creator of truth. We live in a world that wants to deny truth, where truth is called into question. This is a direct affront to the, the creator of the world. God is the creator of truth. The works of his hands are truth and judgment. And then the evidence that he's talking about the word of God in the scriptures comes at the end of verse 7, where he says all his precepts are trustworthy. So God made truth and justice, and then he laid down his precepts, his truth in the scriptures. What the psalmist is saying is that God's revelation is not false, but in accordance with reality. And God's judgments, his decisions, are not improper or unfair, but right. And God's teachings, his precepts, are not unreliable, but faithful. They're trustworthy. And then look at 111 verse 8. They are established, the word of God, the precepts of the Lord. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Now, to this point, the Lord is the one who is faithful, and we've got this company of the upright. And if we ask, who are the company of the upright? Well, they're those, they are those who perform the words of God in verse 8 with faithfulness and uprightness. So implicitly, the psalmist is saying the people of God reflect God's own character, his faithfulness and his uprightness back to him by means of doing what God's word says. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? The problem with that is, in ourselves, prior to God's work on us and in us, we don't want to do God's Word, do we? And the solution to that is in verse 9. So before we go to verse 9, though, let me just say, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, why would anybody want to do what the Bible says? That is not the fun stuff. Um, several years ago, I... I um, I joined this uh, baseball team to be around unbelievers, and uh, these guys all know that I'm a pastor, and, and so we naturally have these conversations, and there's kind of this banter, and one of these guys on my team, he, he just, out of nowhere, one day in the dugout, decides to announce, kind of looking at me, you know, fully aware that I'm right there, I love sin. Sin is the best part of life. And I'm thinking to myself, brother? that's going to land you in hell forever. Now, I thought brother, but I didn't mean brother. You know, obviously he's not a brother in Christ. But um, if you're somebody and you think like that, I love sin. The hope for you is in verse 9. Look at verse 9. 
He sent redemption to his people. God doesn't just say to you, want what's right and then leave it there. Now you figure out a way to experience a new desire for what's right. No, God, what God does is he reaches down and he redeems, he ransoms, he brings us out of darkness, out of death. Years ago, I was at this, uh, this church that was trying to be really, really cool. And the message one night when we visited was, um, we need to stop worrying about being right and we need to start loving people. But the guy never said to the congregation, you people are a bunch of sinners who don't want to love people. And he never said to the congregation, God has provided a solution to this in, in the form of giving the Holy Spirit, which will renew your heart and give you a desire to love other people. So you need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and experience this radical work of the Holy Spirit, and then you'll want to love people. He never said those things. And, and, and I left thinking this, that guy just introduced a new law. The new law is love people. The problem is I don't want to love people. I'm not loving apart from the Holy Spirit. So how do, how do I get there? And the psalmist is saying, God sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. So God redeems his people, and then he gives them the covenant, and then they become people who want to do God's word. And so he concludes verse 9 saying, holy and awesome is his name. If you've experienced God's work in your life, you want to praise him. If you've experienced God's work in your life, you want to study his words. If you've experienced God's work in your life, you love the splendor and majesty of what God has done. Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I want to read you a, a series of statements from the book of Proverbs that just reinforce this idea of, of the fear of the Lord. So if you want to turn to Proverbs and follow along with me, I'm not going to read every reference to the fear of the Lord in Proverbs, but there, here are a number of them. Proverbs 1.7 basically says what 111.10 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So the starting place for knowledge is fearing the world's creator. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 29 talks about those who were destroyed. It says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. In this novel, uh, Mansfield Park by Jane Austen that I was reading, um, the guy that wants to marry the main character, the girl, he, he starts doing everything right. And, and, and yet earlier in her acquaintance with him, he had shown himself to be a person of, of, of bad character. He had been flirting with another man's wife. And then he professes his love for our main character. And then he starts acting like he's going to be faithful and noble and upright. And, and as, as the audience... I, uh, as a member of the audience, I began to wonder, okay, did she set me up for one of her twists here? Did she start me out thinking this is going to be a bad guy, and then is she going to flip it on me in the end and he's really a good guy? And it doesn't work out that way. It works out that that guy runs off and commits adultery. And he ruins his life. Proverbs 129, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Look at Proverbs 2. 
Uh, He says in verse 1, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, look at verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. One of the things that you find as you read the book of Proverbs is that uh, it circles back to these topics. You know, and what, what we're doing is just walking through and looking at all the statements about the fear of the Lord. But when you read all the statements about one of these topics, like the fear of the Lord together, it's like it creates this web of meaning. And it's, it's as though these statements take on a deeper and broader significance as you read all of them together, and they begin to inform one another. Look at Proverbs 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Now, I think what he's saying is something like this. If you fear God, you'll hate evil because you're afraid of the punishment that you know God is going to visit on those who do evil. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Look at chapter 9, verse 10. Here it is again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Um, Chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. The Bible is saying if you'll fear God, you'll live in a way that's safe. If you don't fear God, you're going to live in a way that you're probably going to get yourself killed. Chapter 14, verse 2. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord. Twenty-six, uh, Verse 26 of chapter 14 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Uh, chapter 15, verse 33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. We could go, I could go on and on reading a lot more of these. I just want to read the one about the noble wife in chapter 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Back to... Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the context of the Psalter, why did those kings get their heads crushed in Psalm 110? Because they didn't fear Yahweh. They didn't heed Psalm 2. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. They didn't fear God and they got themselves destroyed. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Psalm 112 picks up right where 111 leaves off. Look at 112.1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Okay, so 111, praise God for his works of salvation. Praise God for his faithful word. 112. Praise God. Hallelujah. And then here's, here's the logic, I think, between praise the Lord and blessed is the man. Praise God that what the Bible says is the good life is, in fact, the good life. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So the rest of the psalm is going to talk about the blessed man. 
And I think what's happening here is the, the psalm is laying out for us, here's, a, here's a, an encapsulation of the good life. Praise God for the good life. I think that's the way this, this logic is working. Praise God that what he said would be the good life is indeed the path to the good life. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Now, in, in uh, 111... Verse 2, we saw that the works of the Lord are studied by all who delight in them. And then in uh, 111 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So verse 1 of, of 112 is bringing together the delight in the Bible with the fear of the Lord. So you fear God and you delight in what He commands. And then there's a statement about the children of such a person in verse 2. His offspring will be mighty in the land. Um, the Bible regularly says things like this. Uh, it expects pastors to have godly children. Uh, over in, in uh, Proverbs, it says that if you train up a child in uh, his way, he'll not depart from it. And, and, and there are these indications that righteous, godly people are going to have noble, mighty, good offspring. Uh, I don't think that this is a guarantee. I do think it is the way that things normally work. Normally, godly, good parents have godly, good children. Normally. There are exceptions. Sometimes um, um, a reprobate is born to a believing household. And the reprobate chooses his way. That's the way it goes sometimes. But normally, it's the other way. Now, uh, let, me, let me draw your attention down to verse 9, the end of verse 9, because I want to introduce an, another thought here into Psalm 112. Look down at verse 9. At the end, it says, His horn is exalted in honor. Because of that statement, I think there, there's, there's sort of a two-level uh, meaning in Psalm 112. At one level, we're talking about the blessed man, the king. And it's his horn that's going to be exalted. At another level, we're talking about everybody that follows the king. Okay? There's a both and. So, so to put it another way, the blessed man in Psalm 112 first applies to Jesus and then applies to everybody that follows Jesus. And if you say to me, well, what's this about the offspring of, of Jesus, let's say? Well, remember Psalm 50, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, verse 10? After it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, it says he will see his offspring. And, and then, uh, so Jesus is going to have offsprings, I think spiritual children. Uh, and, then, and then there are other things said in, in the same context about how the, uh, those who believe in Jesus are going to multiply in, Psalm, in Isaiah 54. So, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. The word generation here is used to refer to a kind of people. And, and these are the upright. These are those who are going to experience the blessing. The generation of the upright. Look back at 111, verse 1. In the company of the upright. And then look at 111.9. He sent redemption to his people. So if we ask, who are the generation of the upright? Well, they're the council of the upright. They're those who are redeemed. And they are those who delight in God's word. 
the generation of the upright will be blessed. And then look at verse 3. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Um, obviously, there are ways that we can understand how Jesus can be uh, wealthy, right? He's going to inherit the wealth of nations. He's the king of all the earth. What about, uh, how, does, how would this apply to the people of Jesus? How, would we, how could we rightly say that wealth and riches are in his house? Well, if you look at Proverbs, what I want to do here is, is walk through a number of statements again in Proverbs. And, and if you look at these statements in Proverbs, there's this, this constant teaching that those who know God, they work hard, uh, they, they, they're, they're frugal, they're, they're righteous with their money, they don't, they don't love pleasure. There's a proverb that says something like, do you see a man who loves wine? And what it's saying is, do you see someone who loves excessive uh, experiences of pleasure? Then it goes on to say, he will not be wealthy. What it's saying is, if you're a person who just blows all your money on your pleasures, you're, you're not going to wind up somebody who has a lot of, of money. But then there are these other statements like this. Listen to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Proverbs 14, verse 24. The crown of the wise is their wealth. But the folly of fools brings folly. And then, then there are other statements. I'm just going to read one more. Proverbs 14, verse 24. I'm sorry, I just read 14, 24. 15, 6 is the one I want. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. So I think the Bible is teaching that those who know God, they're going to work hard, they're going to save, and they're going to enjoy the fruits of their labor. In, in, in inappropriate ways, in moderation. Psalm 112, verse 3, Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. And then verse 4 speaks of hope for the righteous. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. This is like Proverbs 4, verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until the full day. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. I think this is getting at the way that just when it seems worst for God's people, the sun comes up. Some unexpected development delivers them from what they most dread. And then the rest of the verse says, He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Look back at 111 at the end of verse 4. The Lord is gracious and merciful. This is another way that the righteous people are reflecting God's character because we're talking about, we're talking about Jesus and then those who follow Jesus in 112.4, he is gracious and merciful and righteous. Another characteristic of the righteous is that they are generous. Uh, Proverbs even goes so far as to say in Proverbs 19 verse 17 that the one who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. If you're generous to the poor, you lend to the Lord. Look at Proverbs, uh, Psalm 112, verse 5. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends. Again, I, I just want to read you a number of statements from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 11, verse 24. 
One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. And then listen to Proverbs 21, verse 26. It says, all day long, he's talking about the wicked man, he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. And then one more of these, Proverbs 28, verse 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. So the, the, the Bible is saying if you've experienced God's generosity, that's going to overflow into generosity to other people. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, verse 5, who conducts his affairs with justice. And then in verse 6, he talks about how this man is stable in his generosity. Verse 6, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Now, this is where a minute ago we were talking about 111 uh, verse uh, uh, 4, where it says he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. And now we're talking about a righteous man who will be remembered forever. Uh, the way this is worded uh, in Hebrew it's, what it says is, um, it says, he, he is a memorial forever, the righteous man is. And, and, and I, that made me naturally think of the way that, that Jesus took the Passover and he transformed it into a commemoration of what he did, right? When he, he takes this, um, this unleavened bread, which symbolizes a hasty departure from Egypt, and he breaks it and in essence says, this is not about the exodus from Egypt anymore. This now, from now on, do this in remembrance of me. And it's like he's saying, we're not going to commemorate the exodus as God's way of saving his people. We're now going to commemorate the cross, what I've done as God's way of saving God's people. And then there's a sense in which righteous people are remembered. So Jesus and his followers, I think, are included here in verse 6. Verse 7, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Verse 8, his heart is steady. He will not be afraid. This blessed man, he knows God. He knows God's word. He knows God's character. So the bad news comes, and, and you know what he starts thinking? He's, he, he starts thinking like I was thinking as I was reading this John, Jane Austen novel yesterday. I know where this is going. I know where a suffering, sympathetic character is going to lead me. It's going to lead me to a satisfying resolution. And, and that's the way that we respond when we know God, when we trust Him. Verse 9 again speaks of the generosity of the blessed man. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then at the end of verse 9, that statement sounds a lot like 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, which was spoken of the Messiah. He will lift up the horn of his anointed, 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. His horn is exalted in honor. That, verse, that statement makes me think that we're talking about the blessed man. In response to all this, the wicked in verse 10, the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. There are all these statements in, in, the, in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew, about how there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
as these people are frustrated when they see the king, God's king, exalted, when they see God's people delivered, and they have their own plans thwarted. I think all these, Matthew 8, 12, 13, 42, I could give you a list of references. I think all those uh, statements in the Gospels about weeping and gnashing of teeth are informed by the way the wicked, they see the, the blessing of God on the righteous, and they gnash their teeth and melt away. And then look at the end of Psalm 112. The desire of the wicked will perish. If you desire what God has promised, you will enjoy lasting satisfaction in a new heavens and new earth, in a glorified body fully equipped to enjoy the pleasures of God. If you desire sin, your desire is going to perish. You will not be ultimately satisfied. So in this, in this string of Psalms, Psalm 107, the redeemed gathered at the new exodus and returned from exile, they speak their praises of God. Psalms 108 and 109, the, the future David recapitulates the, the life of the historical David. And then we, we see the triumph of the Davidic king in Psalm 110, David's Lord. And then the praise for God's work and word in Psalm 111. And then the praise for God about the blessed life enjoyed by those who fear God and keep His commandments in Psalm 112. In some ways, Psalm 112 is like a, a poetic restatement of the blessings of the covenant. So, so I think we can say this is what God wants for His people. God wants His people to enjoy His blessing. And if we ask, what does that look like? We can look at Psalm 112 and, and see there that, that this is the path to the good life, loving God fearing Him, loving His Word, and walking with Him in experience of all His goodness. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would continue Your work in us so that there, there is no part of us that resonates with a love for sin. Lord, we don't want to be those who don't understand what we do. We don't want to be those who who do what we hate and who can't do what we love. We want to be those who, ex who have experienced your redemption, who find delight in your commandments, who delight in studying your works. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue, continue your work in us by the Spirit, that we might be people who live lives that are pleasing to you, lives that experience the fullness of your blessing, and we pray for it in Christ's name. Amen.